from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the CR podcast. My name is Luigi Scazzieri. I'm a research fellow at the Center for European Reform. And this episode of the CR podcast is on the prospects for German foreign and security policy after the elections that will take place in just a couple of weeks on the 26th of September. I'm delighted to be joined today by Claudia Mayo, head of the international security programs at Berlin Stiftung Wissenschaft und Politik and Sophia Besch, Senior Research Fellow at the CER. Hello to you both, and thank you very much for joining me today. And so with the elections just a few weeks away, the polls are pointing towards a rather fragmented political landscape. This means that there are many possible coalitions that can emerge after the elections, potentially after quite a long-winded uh, negotiation process involving significant compromises between different parties. So just to mention a few possibilities, there might be a coalition uh, between the Conservative Christian Democrats, the Greens and the Social Democrats, or between the Social Democrats, the Greens and the far left, Die Linke. And uh, of course, many of these parties um, don't necessarily see fully eye to eye on the main foreign policy issues. But in our discussion, we'll be focusing on, I think, two main uh, sets of issues. The first being foreign policy in a narrow sense, specifically whether Germany is likely to become tougher uh, towards authoritarian countries such as Russia and China, and how we can expect its relationship with the US to evolve moving ahead. For example, there has been uh, much speculation that if the Greens have an important role in the new government, Germany might be willing to take a, a tougher stance. But um, on the other hand, if the linker were to have an important role, the opposite might be might be true. And the second issue on which we'll focus is Germany's stance towards defense issues. Uh, of course, uh, Germany has come under a lot of criticism from its allies for not uh, meeting NATO's target of two percent on GDP of of GDP on on defense, uh, despite having a very strong economy, and it's also often accused of leaning quite a lot on others for for security. So we'll explore what the prospects are of Germany taking on a, a greater share of the uh, European and transatlantic security burden. But that's enough from me, so let's turn um, to, uh, to Claudia first. Claudia, if, if you look at the different coalition options that might emerge from, from negotiations, how likely do you think uh, it is that Germany will rethink its, its, its foreign policy or parts of its foreign policy, and especially that it might take a, a stronger stance, uh, some have speculated, towards Russia and China. Um, would the German government ever follow the US into a confrontation with China? That, that's a whole lot of question um, <laughs> to answer. Uh, thanks first for, for having me, and I'm really delighted to be here. I think if you look overall at the German election, there is a what seems to be a little contradiction. On the one hand, this election will be a major change for Germany, because after 16 years, Merkel is not running again, we will have a new chancellor, we will have to a large extent uh, a new parliament because many former MPs or many MPs are going to leave and we will get a lot of new 
parliamentarian. So there is uh, a big change ahead. Um, and also, you mentioned that already, we are likely to get a three-party coalition government. So three different political parties that need to find consensus um, and that need to agree. So there is a lot of change ahead. But, and that's interesting, if you look at foreign security and defense policy, the change is likely to be, for the same reasons, rather limited, um, mainly because as a coalition government, we have those three parties, we don't know which parties, that have to agree, they have to find a compromise, and they have to put that into a coalition treaty which binds the coalition partners for the next four years. And that also means that you really, really have to find a compromise compromise between sometimes um, contradictory position, the one that is in favor of nuclear sharing and nuclear deterrence and the one who is deeply against it, the one who is more um, soft on China and the one that is very, very harsh or very critical of China. So this is going to be a very interesting process. But there's another reason. If you have a three-party coalition government, that also means that the ministry that you need to deliver foreign and security policy will be in different political, in the hand of different political parties. It means the foreign ministry, the ministry of defense, ministry of interior, development cooperation, all those ministries will be run by different political parties. So I think the really the leitmotiv to understand German foreign security and defense policy ahead is compromise and consensus. And that means we are unlikely to get a revolution, but we are likely to get evolution on some points. And that is, you hinted on that um, already, is China, um, Russia, and maybe also um, transatlantic affairs. Thank you very much for that introduction, Claudia. Um, before we get to Sophia, can I just ask you to expand a little on what sort of changes we might see with the countries you mentioned? Whether we will see changes and to what extent or in what direction really depends on the coalition partners, whether the Greens are going to be in government or not, whether the Conservatives are going to be in government or not. So it's a lot of speculation in the moment. Maybe to give you one example um, on China and if the Greens were into government, because this is where I would expect um, the, biggest, the biggest change. On China, the Greens really call for an approach based on dialogue and robustness. That means they want to follow a really tougher stance with regard to human rights, but also with regard to economic ties. Um, they call, for example, to diversify markets, but also imports and to increase resilience. The conservatives are far more into a convergence uh, approach that didn't really work in the past, to be honest. Um, but they are far more to reluctant, they're far more reluctant to actually um, politicize uh, the economic sector or the economic questions, and they're not really into imposing anything on companies. So this is going to be a really, really interesting question because the Greens started more or less as an anti-system party, I would say, so very critical of the traditional politics. And they have changed a lot over time. So they have changed some positions. They have been very critical of the armed forces and now accept the armed forces. They have been very critical of NATO. They now accept NATO. Annalena Baerbock even said she's a convinced transatlanticist. So they evolved on some issues, but they have remained very principled on other issues. And these are mainly human rights, international order, multilateralism, and, and elements like that. So on China, I really expect um, this, this kind of continuity on fundamental positions, values um, of the Greens coming in. 
Thank you, Claudia. Turning now to, to you, Sophia, I wonder, well, first of all, whether you agree with, uh, with Claudia's assessment, and second, if you can expand a little bit on uh, the debate on, on relations with the US in Germany. Is the US still perceived as a, as a reliable partner? Uh, well, thank you, first of all, for having me. There are very few things that I enjoy doing more than talking about German foreign policy with Claudia. So this is huge fun for me. Uh, first of all, uh, do I agree on um, what changes we might see under the Greens? Um, would the Greens make a difference? Would the SPD make a difference? I think if you look at the three main parties in the running, two of the three candidates, the two men, have cast themselves as the next Merkel, as the continuity candidates. Scholz is currently more successful than Laschet. Baerbock, the Green candidate, has cast herself as the candidate for change. As Claudia has said, the Greens are generally a bit more hawkish um, on foreign policy. They're pursuing a bit more of a human rights-based foreign policy. They really embrace this U.S. narrative of systemic competition, I think, between authoritarian regimes and democracies. And that, of course, has an effect on their policy vis-a-vis -vis Russia and China. The SPD is the least interested in geopolitics. I think they have some pet issues like drones or nuclear sharing. Um, the CDU, most of all, has the continuation course of a Merkel foreign policy, possibly with some change on China, and I'm going to come back to that in a bit. But I think overall, it's just important to say that when you look at the election programs on foreign and security policy, there's actually quite a lot of agreement um, between the parties. And that's because there's a pretty broad foreign policy consensus in Germany. And one pillar of this consensus, um, because you mentioned the transatlantic relationship, Luigi, is the relationship with the US. And it's pretty hard to argue that Germany's security depends on the political, the military link between Germany and the United States. And most in Berlin are aware that German security will be pretty profoundly affected by the continuing reorientation of the US attention away from Europe and away from the European neighborhood. That being said, I think there's one issue in particular that the parties differ on when it comes to the transatlantic relationship and which might affect this relationship. And that's nuclear sharing. Claudia already mentioned it earlier. Um, the conservative CDU party is the only party that really explicitly commits to Germany's role in NATO's nuclear sharing agreement. Um, the other parties have criticized um, the fact that there are US bombs stationed in Germany and they argue that Germany should set an example, help pave the way for a nuclear weapons free world. Um, in a nod to Alliance responsibility, the Greens have said that uh, before Germany could exit, it would first have to reassure its allies in the East. And I think that's sort of symbolic for uh, what the Greens have done with a lot of their core issues. Um, their legacy issues, if you will, is that they are very open to compromise. <laughs> they make really clear that they want to govern and um, they take a stance on the one hand and then they open a little door to uh, compromise in the coalition agreement. Um, but it does matter, this question of nuclear sharing, because uh, as many will know, uh, the decision over the tornado replacement has been left pending for the next uh, government. And the Biden administration has already stated officially that they see continued German participation in nuclear sharing as a critical element of the relationship. So this is, I think, one to watch in when it comes to the transatlantic relationship. And I just wanted to add on China, maybe I agree with what Claudia has said on how uh, green participation in the government might change the German approach. I would go even further and say that I think the German approach is bound to change no matter who is in the next government and who is the next chancellor, because Merkel really held up um, 
a German course that was shaped by economic interest and um, this idea of change through trade, but also this hope that um, China, as it became richer, would transition into a liberal democracy. And that the idea that China's influence in the international system would have to be accommodated and that mutual interdependence could function as a de-escalating force. And I just think that that German consensus is eroding already, even in the CDU party. Um, I think that the, a lot of elements have contributed to that. One, China's role throughout the COVID pandemic and the security crackdown in Hong Kong, the repression of the Uyghurs. But also, I think a lot of people in Berlin have understood that the Biden uh, presidency really is pushing for coordination with Europeans on China. So while the um, German foreign policy elite, if you will, doesn't really perceive China as a conventional threat, I do think that they are uh, in the next government going to be more hawkish when it comes to cooperation with China. Now, everybody who is into German politics, who's listening to this, uh, is going to want to interrupt me now and say, well, they are going to encounter the realities of uh, German economic links with China, and you can uh, have a lot of rhetoric, but then uh, will we actually see action? And of course they are right. And Claudia has already said, the um, German party programs will of course have to survive uh, the encounter with reality. But I do think that the consensus overall is changing and that is partly due to uh, the fact that Germans still prioritize the transatlantic relationship overall and the US is really pressuring on China. Did you uh, want to comment on that, Claudia? I, I, I totally agree, Sophia. Um, I think there's something I would add, and that's maybe for the non-German listeners interesting, that um, foreign security and defense policy is, is not the topic that will make or break a coalition. So it's for us really important. Um, but if the three parties have to agree, um, the main kind of contentious issue will be economics, climate, and probably social questions. But um, a coalition will not kind of break or will not be actually happen because of differences in foreign security and defense policy. Um, because those, those topics actually don't really matter in the campaign um, or in the debate. So um, I think that that's an important point to, to, to make. And it's also, I want to underline uh, the aspect of the willingness to enter a coalition. What we see in many programs are what I would call the arms wide open to make a coalition possible. If you look at the green program, there is this, there is this one statement, how important NATO is as a pillar of defense in Europe. And some pages further, you have uh, the call to enter the Bund Treaty, which is obviously to some extent contradictory. But this just opens the field where agreement can be found with the coalition partners, and that's important. But if we take that a bit more to the, um, to the European level, I think what is interesting also is to see that the Greens with a kind of somehow critical stance on nuclear order or nuclear sharing and nuclear deterrence with their critical positions on arms exports, which they want to limit, with their very hawkish stance, as you said, Sophia, on China, that they are not the odd one out in the German debate. Because most parties, the Social Democrats and the Liberals, are also very critical of nuclear issues, on more in favor of the Bahn Treaty, and rather hawkish on, on China. So I think what we need to understand is that it's not so much the Greens the odd one out in Germany, but Germany remains a very special country in Europe. 
This is a country which is the most reluctant to engage on defense matters. It's the most reluctant on nuclear deterrence question, although we host US nuclear weapons on our soil and actively participate in the nuclear sharing arrangements. So I think this Germany having a very special stance in defense in Europe is a very critical point because if Germany delivers on defense, Germany's strengths will be Europe's strengths because many smaller countries in Central and Eastern Europe like Hungary or also uh, like the Netherlands very closely cooperate with Germany. So if we are strong, European defense will benefit. If we are not strong, if we are weak, if we don't spend enough, if we don't spend well, if we don't cooperate, if you think we don't have to care about defense, it will not only be our weakness, it will be Europe's weakness. And this is why this topic, which doesn't get much attention in Germany, unfortunately, is in the end a real European topic. Thank you, Claudia. Uh, Sophia, turning uh, to you again now, I, I wanted to bring in Afghanistan and ask how the withdrawal, the American and European withdrawal from there, has shaped the debate in Germany and what you think its impact is going to be looking ahead, especially on Germany's willingness to be involved in similar uh, stabilization operations in the future. So on Afghanistan, I think it's honestly a bit too early to tell which lessons Germany is going to draw from from this withdrawal. Um, it has entered obviously the German political debate as an, at an interesting time. Um, the parties I'm sure would have preferred not to talk about Afghanistan right before the election because no one is looking really very good um, in the current debate. But in terms of how this will influence the German approach to these kinds of operations in the future, I think right now we have a real cacophony of different lessons that are being proposed. And I don't think it's clear yet which one will gain most traction among Germans. I'll be interested to hear what Claudia thinks. But I think, one, there's this lesson being offered that this is the end of long-term state-building operations, which is fair. Uh, and also, perhaps this is a generational thing, but I don't really have the impression that younger generations of Germans who grew up in the specter of Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan, had harbored very many illusions on this front anyway. Then there is this strand of debate that seems to draw the lesson that Germany needs to invest in the European ability to act because what Afghanistan really showed us was that we weren't able to do anything without the US, um, which is true, you know, Germany had just prolonged um, its deployment in Afghanistan and then the US decided to go and we had to go um, very quickly as well. Um, and I do agree, anybody who's ever read anything that I've written knows that I do agree that uh, Europeans need to invest in their ability to act, they need to spend more money on defense. But I think there's a danger here of using the Afghanistan example to push this EU wish list of EU troops and investment and capabilities, because I think it ignores the fact that the EU really didn't want to stay without the US in Afghanistan. Um, my own hopeful take is that Afghanistan could maybe spark a broader discussion about training missions in the unstable environment and whether or how they have a future. Because now that Afghanistan is over, of course, the greatest other Bundeswehr deployment is in Mali, where German troops are part of the UN mission and the EU mission. And there are questions raised now over Mali. These questions are, of course, not new, but the attention, I think, is new. And those questions include the whether we can do training and enabling missions when there are no stable political structures in place, whether we are able as Western troops to incentivize credible political reforms, to incentivize the fight of corruption. And I think it's a good thing that there 
might be a debate about this now in Germany. I really hope that we can sustain this momentum. Countries like France have been trying to get Germany to care more about this for years. Um, but the question in the end, I think, will be whether that debate translates into funding and staffing <laughs> when the rubber meets the road. But I'll be interested what Claudia thinks. Thank you, Sophia. Uh, turning to you, Claudia, how, what do you think? How do you see the, the German debate on Afghanistan? I'm, I agree with your with your analysis, Sophia. I just I'm just afraid I'm a bit more pessimistic, although I don't want to be pessimistic. So I think it's it's still it's still a bit too early to have real well-funded lessons from Afghanistan. Um, but if you look at the national level, at the European or EU level and the NATO level, they are kind of first impressions we can already take. So at the national German level, um, this was the operation that has shaped a whole generation of the German armed forces. That was the, the first biggest far away operation for 20 years that those military leaders we are now, are now in the kind of leading command positions, they have been shaped by Afghanistan. So that's really a very important mission. Um, the lessons we could learn is, for example, about our procedures. Um, uh, if you look, for example, at the evacuation operation at the end, but also from the beginning, how do we interact? How do we, with the civilian um, personnel in the field? Because Germany has since the beginning very much pushed for this operation being not only a military one, but a comprehensive one with development, cooperation, humanitarian help, the education of judges and um, teachers and everything. So how does it actually work in the field? At the NATO level, it's obviously the question of what kind of operation we do, as Sophia said, but also how do we cooperate with our biggest ally, and that's the US, because it didn't coordinate and cooperate um, in the last decisions. And at the European level, Afghanistan has actually taught us lessons, particularly over the last weeks, which we knew already, but which we didn't want to see. And the biggest lesson is obviously the lack of political will of the Europeans to get engaged and to stay. But that's something we knew already. It again revealed um, the military weakness of many Europeans, but that's not new either. It was the same in Syria in 2019. It was can go back until the Balkans in the 1990s. So Europe has enormous shortfalls, but that's also something we knew. Um, I think what is probably the, the most, one of the most painful lessons is the lack of credibility of Western states. And to rebuild such a credibility um, for those Western democracies who were engaged in Afghanistan, that's a major task ahead. What I would wish for as a lesson is to understand how the international landscape of crisis has changed in the past. And we could see that Western countries like the US or France or the UK are less and less present, but that China and Russia are increasingly present. And that also means they define the framework for stabilization and for crisis management with the norms and values they find important, which are certainly not the same that Europeans might find important. So I think we have we have a lot of lessons to learn in Germany at the European level, at NATO, but my big fear is that we will not really care about it because Afghanistan is far away, the operation is over. It doesn't really change our threat perception in Europe. So why would it change now if I look at Europe at a European level? We had many wake up calls. We had the Libya operation. We had the annexation of Crimea in 2014 and the war on the Donbass. Russia's commitment in Syria, there were many wake-up calls for Europe, which were very strong, 
But so far, European defense has slowly evolved, but there was not really a kind of big leap forward. So I think we have many lessons uh, to be learned, but I wonder how much will, will really change. So um, I hope to be convinced of the opposite, but um, I hope things might change for the better for European defense, but I'm slightly pessimistic. Thank you. Um, I wanted to turn now to the question of, of defense spending. Germany has slightly increased its defense spending over the past few years, but in the eyes of most of its allies, it's still not, uh, not doing enough. So what's your view of, of how a future German government will approach the issue? And perhaps if you can also give us a sense of the public and political debate on, uh, on the military. I'll, uh, I'll stay with you, uh, Claudia, before, before going into Sophia. So please go ahead. Spending is, is getting a lot of attention because it's, it's easy to, to see or to measure. Um, the German defense budget has increased over the last years a lot. We have been at around 33 billion in 2013. It's now almost 50. So there is a big increase in German defense spending, but it doesn't reach the 2% agreed in NATO. And it's not likely to do anytime soon if you look at the financial forecast for the next years. Obviously the next government will take its own decisions, but the, pot, the forecasts now actually show that the spending will go down um, a little bit. But I think actually spending, I mean, we all know the shortfalls of the 2% uh, goal. It measures what you spend. It doesn't really measure what you get out. You obviously have the internal NATO metrics where you measure cash uh, capabilities and contributions to operations. But I still would say defense spending is not the most pressing issue if you look at German defense or if you look at a possible to-do list for the next government on defense. Um, I think there, if I, if I may, I think there are other points I would, I would put on the list. Um, and the first is to understand for the German decision makers that defense is a power resource. That sounds probably a bit simple for the international debate, but in Germany, it's indeed a very important point to make. Um, many German elites hardly acknowledge that military power has again become a key tool on international relations. And if you want to have a say in the changing balance of power in the systemic rivalry, you have to recognize that th this tool exists and that it's part of your toolbox. The second is, and that's a very basic rule, that the readiness of the German, German armed forces is extremely low. There were strong um, commitments to increase it over the last years. But you cannot really ignore decades of underinvestment, of poor management, uh, lack of attention, and that all has really reduced uh, the technological edge of the German armed forces um, and has affected the availability for collective defense, but also for stabilization. So low readiness, it has to be addressed. We have a really, really bad procurement system that really, really doesn't work. Um, it's overregulated, it's outdated, um, and it's really an obstacle if you want to beef up capabilities quickly. So it's not only a question about 2% of money, it's a question actually of actually, can you actually spend it um, effectively and wisely, and that's hardly the case in the moment. And the force is a typical German problem, and that's a lack of public support or of, of, of interest, actually. You have a, a funny situation where the armed forces rank really highly in terms of public trust, but what they do, the job of a soldier doesn't get much support. So that's a kind of internal tension uh, you have to deal with. Um, and that's, that's uh, due to a lot of historical reasons and all that, but that also explains why we don't talk a lot 
uh, about defense. And if we talk about it, it very often stays in very pre-formatted uh, debate avenues, um, if I might say. So we almost always know how a debate about nuclear sharing, about arms exports, about 2% two defense, defense spending is going to go um, because it's kind of anchored in the strategic culture. So we can talk about arms export, defense spending, and, and uh, interventions, nuclear issues, and all that. But I think the real issues we have is to understand defense as power resource, the low readiness, the wreck procurement system, and the lack of public support. If we can address those in the next four years, that would be marvelous. Sophia, how optimistic are you that these issues are going to be addressed? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I honestly, I mean, couldn't agree more with, with Claudia on the distinction she made between what we tend to talk about, which is the 2%, and what we should really be talking about. I think part of why we talk about the 2% is that's what Germany's allies care about. And a lot of our defense discussion is imported from abroad, because we don't really have very much in terms of domestic defense discussion. I think it is worth saying, just because we have a lot of non-German listeners who will be, care about the 2%, that there's no, I mean, this whole will they or won't they question, you really won't find very many fans among any of the parties of the 2% target. And that shouldn't scare you <laughs> because they are proposing different ways of trying to, those who care about defense are proposing different ways of trying to uh, fix the problems that Claudia has mentioned. You know, the conservative liberals, the FDP, they've called for the 3%, so spending money on defense, diplomacy and development. The conservative defense minister, uh, Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer has in the past floated this 10% goal for Germany's NATO contributions, which is supposed to encompass uh, cash capabilities and commitments. Uh, the Green Party, the Social Democrats also want a, a different metric that is based on, on tasks. So those who care in Berlin are aware of the problem and they are trying to fix it. And the fact that they're not willing to accept the 2% target shouldn't um, undermine what they are trying to do. Uh, in terms of how uh, optimistic am I? It's pretty hard to be optimistic uh, in light of the forecasts. Um, I mean, the, the, the cold hard numbers tell a different story, right? So the defense budget has increased a lot. In fact, the parliament has just um, adopted the a record increase, the largest increase ever. We're at 53 billion, I think now for the next year, but it is um, forecast to go down again, which makes planning really difficult, which makes it really difficult to fix the procurement issues that, that Claudia mentioned earlier. I'm trying to, uh, find an optimistic angle to end with. Well, I think coming back to what we said in the very beginning about how important the distribution of ministries will be. I think what we should look for is whether the defense ministry and the finance ministry are in the hand of the same party or two parties that get along, <laughs> because that <laughs> is a precondition to try and fix some of the problems that we're facing here. So uh, maybe I'll end with that, uh, which brings us full circle to the specificities of the German election system and how what you see is not always what you get and how you really have to look into um, not just the election results, but what actually happens during the coalition negotiations in the months that follow. Thank you, Sophia, for ending on that uh, cautiously optimistic note. And uh, thank you both very much for joining me today. I think it's been a fascinating discussion on what we can expect following the elections. And uh, maybe it won't be too long before we'll actually be discussing German foreign policy again once, uh, once the government has been formed. But thank you all for listening to this episode of the CER podcast. 
please leave us uh, your feedback uh, if you have any and don't forget to rate the podcast if you haven't yet done so goodbye Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.